Good morning. Have you ever heard the old joke, what does it mean when a pastor looks at his watch? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Ephesians. Pastor Dave and Irene, thank you for the privilege of Susan and I being able to come and be with you all this morning. What a, how wonderful it is to be with Calvary Chapel people. Um, I get to be, uh, literally, the Lord has provided opportunity for me to be all around the world this year. I literally went around the world. Uh, if you started in Charlotte, if you started here to go to Charlotte, North Carolina, to San Diego, to Hawaii, uh, to Japan, uh, from Japan to Dubai, to Dubai to Europe, and Europe back to New York, and New York back home. So literally this year. And uh, I get to meet people all over. So I get lots of stories. And, and typically people start with an I am statement. They'll say, I am so-and-so, and they'll say their name, and then they typically say their occupation, I am, what they do in their occupation. But if we look at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul starts with, I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Uh, to put this into context for you today, I want to ask you a question. If you had a choice today to save your own life, or to give your life up for somebody else. And this is just a true dilemma. You're in a position, you find yourself somewhere, uh, maybe you know, you're in a car accident or you're in flying in an airplane, but you're in a, in a situation where it's either you save your life or you save somebody else. Do you know what you'd do? It's a hard question, isn't it? See, Paul had spent the majority of his ministry time with the church at Ephesus. He founded this church. He spent three years here. He became very close to these people. When it came time for him to go to Jerusalem in the Lord's will and eventually get to Rome and, and, and what was happening with the rest of his life, they had the prophecy that this was going to be the last time they would see him. And they bound him up. And they said, don't go. Don't leave us. And so Paul had a choice to either stay with them and keep his life or continue on to Jerusalem and then on to Rome where he eventually would give up his life. Uh, my wife Susan and I in, in our travels this year had a chance to go to Canada to Halifax, Nova Scotia. And Halifax is a seaport city there in the island of Nova Scotia in the maritime provinces of Canada on the eastern coast of, of Canada. And uh, we had a chance to tour the city and one of the things we stumbled upon was a maritime museum, a sea museum. You go in and you see all these artifacts. Well, the one thing that never occurred to us was that the artifacts in, in one section of this museum is all about the Titanic. And uh, Halifax was one of the closest seaports to where the Titanic was sinking when it sent out its distress signals and sent out some of the first ships and boats to go out and try to see if they could rescue anybody. And you know the story and the tragedy, over 1,500 lives lost. Uh, virtually everybody who had to go into the water died of hypothermia, the freezing cold water. People who were in the lifeboats survived, but the people who had to go in the water, uh, as, as the best of the records show, only four people were pulled from the water alive as ships got there to rescue them because the other lifeboats were full. They didn't have enough lifeboats for all the passengers. In the catastrophe of the Titanic, many of the rules and laws changed to how ships were to carry passengers, and they, they didn't have enough lifeboats for all the passengers because in their foolishness of man's wisdom, they never believed the Titanic could sink. And in the museum there, over a replica of the Titanic is a quotation from one of the senior engineers, we never have to worry about boats sinking anymore because our technology has surpassed the probability of a boat sinking. And so they changed structures of the engineering of the Titanic itself. Now, the reason I tell you this story, many of you have probably seen a movie about the Titanic, um, the most recent one with Leonardo DiCaprio and this woman who survives with this blue gem and she's floating on a piece of wreckage. What they wouldn't tell you in Hollywood and what no one will tell you is that John Harper was on that boat with his daughter. And when the ship started to sink, he put her in the lifeboat and he, and he could have got in the lifeboat with her but he was a former pastor. And I don't know if you're ever really a former pastor. I guess it means he was a retired pastor. But I think pastor is a pastor all your life kind of thing. And so he told her, don't worry. If you don't see me again, you will see me in heaven. 
He was so sure of his eternal destiny in his faith in Christ that he could put his only daughter in a lifeboat to save her life and then go back to find other people on the ship who needed to be saved. But it wasn't just their physical salvation that he was seeking. He was looking for people who were lost, that he could win to Christ in the final moments of their life. And he did that with one man who survived floating on a piece of wreckage, just like that young woman in the movie Titanic was floating on a piece of wreckage. He was one of the people who was actually saved out of the water. But he wasn't just physically saved. You see, while he was floating on that wreckage, John Harper was floating in the water, trying to witness him to Christ and get him to receive Christ before he died. And the young man wouldn't do it. So Harper took off his own life preserver and handed it to him and said, you need this more than I do. And then started swimming without a life preserver in the frigid cold waters of the North Atlantic to passenger to passenger asking them, do you know Jesus? And if they said no, he started a witness to them so they could accept and pray with him with Jesus in the frigid water. And the last person to accept Christ with him was finally this young man that he gave his life preserver to because he swam back to him and asked him one more time, would you pray with me to receive Jesus? And the young man said yes. And at his moment of conversion, John Harper goes under the water and goes on to the Lord. We have beautiful banners here, and, and most Calvary chapels do, and most churches do. But oftentimes, these just become window dressings and decorations. We lose the meaning of what these passages of Scripture say. And I happen to catch this one about prayer changes things this morning, because I get to meet people literally all over the world. And I'll ask them their stories and, and they'll tell me that they pray or they need prayer. And, and sometimes I can pray with somebody, and I know they don't really believe that the prayer that they're asking me to pray for them, uh, and bear with me one second, you know, like I said, these watch things. I actually did set a timer. I just think I forgot to start it. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. There, it started now, okay. And I don't see a clock in the back, so I... Oh, yeah, there is one right there. It's a little one, Okay. <laughs> Somebody would get the hook, I'm sure. Um, but, but there are times when I pray, pray with people, and they'll tell me what their need is, and I'll pray with them. And I know in their hearts they don't believe that when I pray with them, and what we're praying for is actually going to happen for them. And, and I say, do you believe prayer changes things? Oh, yes, I believe prayer changes everything. Okay. Well, where do you believe it? Do you believe it in your heart, or do you just believe it in your head? Uh, and, and not that this is a new phenomenon for us. If you go to the book of Acts... And, and prior to that, if you go to the Gospels, when Jesus is going to the garden to pray and ask the Father if there's any other way for redemption to occur, for the saving of the human race to occur, would you do it a different way? But if there isn't another way, if I have to suffer, if I have to die, if I have to resurrect from the dead, then I'll accept your will and I'll go do it. But it, it would kind of be nice if there is another way. <laughs> you know, that, that would be okay too. Well, there isn't in any other way. And so he has Peter, James, and John that he separated to go with him just a little bit farther into the garden. Now, James and John were brothers. John goes on to write the Gospel of John, the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then the book of Revelation as it's dictated to him as the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter, we know, survives and goes on to Rome, and tradition says that he is martyred in Rome, crucified upside down because he said he can't die like his Savior died, so they inverted the cross and hanged him. James, John's brother, is killed much earlier. Uh, he's martyred by King Herod, and that leads to Peter's arrest and puts Peter in prison with the idea that Herod is going to kill him to please the Jewish leaders too. The sovereignty of God on our life. That's one of the points I want you to take away when you think about who you are, who you say you are, how you plan your days. Is to, you, you don't do it out of the context that God already has a plan for you, but that you have choice in the plans in which you walk. And, and ultimately, as believers, is are you so sure of your position in Christ, of who you are in Christ? I am in Christ. That the idea of giving up your physical life for someone else isn't even something that has to be a big decision to make. John Harper made up his mind that he would give his life for others long before he hit the frigid waters in the North Atlantic off the Titanic. 
That decision was already made in his life. His eternal destiny was sure in his mind. So how he believed and then how he behaved out of his belief were exactly tied together. What he said he believed and how he behaved were one in the same thing. And, and ladies and gentlemen and younger folks this morning, you only get that by the relationship that you build every day with the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to build it every day. You have to cultivate it every day. You have to be in it every day. These passages of scriptures must be real in your heart before they're real in your mind. Otherwise, they're just pretty window dressings. And they're really nice. I like the idea they look like blue wood kind of thing. That, I mean, they're really nice. But they don't mean anything if the words that they represent haven't touched your heart in a way that makes you secure in who you are in Jesus Christ and whose you are. And that's the purpose of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. There's six chapters. It's not a very big letter. He wrote it to them from prison. So imagine he's, he's awaiting execution. Paul himself is awaiting for the loss of his physical life to go into the spirit life in Christ. The first three chapters are about who we are in Christ. The last three chapters are about what we're supposed to do now that we're in Christ. So there's sort of the learning three chapters and then the doing three chapters. The book of Colossians is a mini version. He wrote it to the Colossians, very similar, but a shorter book, only four chapters, but does the same thing introduces you to who you should be in Christ and then tells you what you should be doing because of who you are positionally in Christ. He had never been to the Colossian church. He'd never met them. He was in prison. Epaphras comes to him and tells him about this new church. Most likely it was founded from people from Ephesus going over to the region of Colossae and witnessing and sharing their faith and, and creating converts and believers into the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Paul writes to them just to encourage them. Never met them but tells them the same thing. He reminds them who you are. So who you are is another way of saying who I am. You've got to be very clear about who you are in Christ. Everything else that you do is predicated on first the foundational understanding of who you are in Jesus Christ. So through the teaching this morning in about 40 minutes or 30 so that I have left, I want to introduce you to something I want you to take with you and leave you to do uh, from the message this morning and some of you can start doing it right in your Bibles. some of you have little journals that you bring to take notes uh, some of you might want to do this later when you go home but I want you to go through th this book with me these chapters and if I get to come back um, uh, and you invite me back you'll know exactly where I'm going to be teaching from the next time I come because wherever I end up in Ephesians today is where I'll start with you the next time I come back uh, so let's turn to the word and, and let's start discovering who we are in Christ and then whose we are. Okay, because there's, there's two, two questions there. And so Paul starts, I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ called by the will of God. Okay, so the first thing Paul introduces to these believers, he lets them know this isn't something he chose for himself. You know the life of the apostle Paul. Uh, you know he was Saul of Tarsus. You know he was a Pharisee. You know he was in the higher order of the uh, Sanhedrin. There's two religious sects in the Jewish ruling council in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees believed in the resurrection and, and the life to come. The Sadducees didn't. So they had their own disagreement even within the Sanhedrin itself. So Paul already had the belief of the resurrection. So it was easy for him to accept the Messiah and life after because he had grown up in that teaching. And so then he has his own conversion experience on the Damascus Road. He had orders to go where he can arrest and kill Christians, and he has his counter encounter with Jesus. And where was your Damascus Road experience? Do you remember where it was? Can you, can you recall the moment that Jesus appeared into your life and, and asked you directly, do you know me? Would you like to know me? Would you like to have a relationship with me? Would you like to invite me into your life? and surrender your will and purpose and plan for who you think you are and allow me to lead and guide you through the power of the Holy Spirit and the plan and purpose I have for you. If you're here today and you've never done that, you don't know that, you'll have an opportunity at the end of service. Pastor will be there. If you've never prayed to receive and accept Jesus Christ into your life, you don't know when you'll have the opportunity. Could you imagine this young man floating on a piece of wreckage in the North Atlantic 
And John Harper swims up to him of all the things someone could say to you in the sinking of the Titanic. Think about this. Think of the magnitude of this, right? Grasp this, please. The Titanic has split apart. You're in the middle of the dark in the North Atlantic, floating on a piece of wreckage, and some guy swims up to you. Of all the things he could say to you, he says, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And what, what would you say to that in that immediate context? I, I, I don't know. But there's been other moments in your life where someone has most likely come up to you and asked you, do you know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Would you like to know him? And it's like, oh, don't bother me. I'm having my Starbucks. I'm looking at my phone. You know, just, yeah, that's nice. I mean, what, how do you respond? And, and the interesting thing is this fella, and the reason we know this story is they had survivor reunions after the years to come of the Titanic. And so he went to one of these reunions of Titanic survivors, and he told the story of John Harper. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if Hollywood, when they made the movie, instead of this woman floating on a raft, wondering if she's going to save this blue jasmine diamond thing, that in the movie, John Harper would have swam up to her and said, do you know Jesus? I mean, wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been, you know, what a, what a more powerful movie uh, in the truth. So who are you? Paul knows who he is. He doesn't have any question about it whatsoever. I am Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Who are you this morning? I'm Michael, a pastor teacher by the will of God. There's other things I do. There's some other things my wife will tell you I don't have any talent for whatsoever. I touch a power tool. She sends out alert messages for mothers to take children off the street. You know, so any of you who are really good carpenters or anybody knows how to lay stone or do anything anybody know how to repair a wooden fence you know look if you're looking for work i could keep you employed for a long time um, let me give you my wife's honey-do list i'll pay you to take care of my wife's honey-do list for me okay so see me after service and he also says who he's talking to, to the saints who are in Ephesus and the faithful who are in Jesus Christ. Now, the first thing I want you to start doing with me, and we're going to walk through this verse by verse, and we're going to start answering I am questions. Okay, so the first one you have to answer is, you, what's your name? Hi, I am Michael. I am a pastor teacher. So you can fill that blank in for you. Who are you? And what is a gift that God's given you? He offers them grace and peace. Notice the order in the scripture. It's always grace and peace. It's never peace and grace. Grace always comes before peace. You can't know the peace of God until you know the grace of God. You can't have peace. I, you know, I meet people I encountered. This is really funny. I have a Roman Catholic background. I was in a Roman Catholic seminary university. I was on my way to being a Roman Catholic priest before Jesus came into my life and I got saved. So I'm sitting in Chicago waiting for a flight. I'm dressed in black slacks, black shoes, white shirt, and a black sweater. I guess I would have looked like a Roman priest to this young woman for some reason. So she comes up, she introduces us, she says, Hi, I don't mean to bother you, but are you a priest? And I said, No, but do you need me to be? And she never answered the question. She just sat down and started pouring her heart out to me. And about 40 minutes later, she hears the call for her plane and says, oh, I've got to go. Thank you for talking with me. And then she said, before I leave, Father, would you bless me? She forgot that I told her I wasn't a priest. So I knew how, because I'd been a good Catholic altar boy. So in nombre Padre, Filio, Spiritu Santo, go, my daughter, in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And she said, thank you, and shook my hand and left. See, when I meet people, the one thing, when I really ask them, if you could have anything in your life right now, what would you really like the most and you know what most people tell me it's never anything material they just like a little more peace in their life they would just like a little peace in their life their lives are in chaos they are hurrying and hurrying and running and hurrying and 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 they have issues in their marriages and they have issues with their children and they have issues with their job and they have issues with their bills their life is consumed with the idea of just trying to survive daily life and what they ask for the most is I wish I could just have a little more peace in my life. Maybe just a little more sleep. You know, that I could sleep without my mind racing about constant worries and constant fear. And then that opens the door for me to witness to them in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So first of all, Paul gives blessing back to God. Before he asks for anything, he gives blessing back to God first. That's a good thing for you to do too. When you go to prayer, before you start asking for something, it would be nice that you put yourself in a position of knowing who you're asking. And when I, when I say that sometimes we really don't believe what we're praying for, God will really answer it. It's okay, because the answer to your prayer isn't contingent upon your faith. It's contingent upon God's grace. Now, how do I know that? There is a false teaching that's been going around near my entire Christian lifetime of the last 40 years of the name it and claim it, profess it and get it kind of thing. And, and the fallacy of this heresy is that if you don't pray in faith, God won't answer your prayer. So if you're praying for something and you haven't got it yet, it means you're not good enough yet. Your faith isn't good. You need more faith. So if you have more faith, then God will answer. Now, does everybody agree with me that's just a lie? Now, don't believe it from me. Let me tell you where you can find it in the scripture. It's in the book of Acts. Because when Peter finally gets arrested, and James, the brother of John, the two sons of Sunder that the mama came and said, hey, would you put our boys at your right hand? You know, James is killed by Herod. And Peter's in prison, so Herod can kill him too. Only the Lord intervenes and says an angel to release him while he's chained between two guards... There are four cohort guards, and cohort in military terms, and I'm a retired military fellow, so I know about military numbers and how you put orders of units together, particularly in the Roman army. They had four rotating shifts of four guards, three hours each. So 16 total guards on the double doors, with him chained to two guards inside the cell. An angel come and puts him out. And so he goes to the house where he knows that the believers are. And the scripture tells us that they were there praying for him to be released. Now follow this. They're there praying, oh Lord, please release Peter. They've already killed James. We don't need Peter to die too, Lord. We need him. He's our leader. And we, you know, you can just imagine the desperation of their prayer. Imagine how you would be praying. You know. And how will you pray one day when one of us as a pastor is arrested by the government because we won't succumb to the speech limitations that will be coming to the United States of America to limit the truth of God's word. If you don't think it can happen, folks, you're naive. It's coming. And so will you gather in prayer for your pastor? And will you believe that if he's in prison, an angel could come and bring him back to you? So the Lord releases Peter. He goes to the house. He knocks on the gate. They're praying. Somebody says, somebody's knocking at the gate. Nobody wants to go. So they send a little girl. Now think about this, guys. Real big macho bravado guys, right? Knocking at the door. Peter's arrested. James has been murdered by the king. Who's going to go answer the door? They send a little girl. So she gets to the little girl. Peter says, Peter, hey, it's me, Peter. Let me in. She's so excited that Peter's there. She doesn't open the gate and let him in. She runs back to tell all the adults in the prayer meeting, Peter's outside. And guess what they do? They tell her to be quiet. They're praying for Peter's release. She goes, he's outside. He said, be quiet. We're praying for Peter's release. He goes, no, you don't understand. He's outside. Oh, well, if you heard his voice, it must be a spirit. Because Peter can't really be outside. Don't you know he's in the prison? Don't you know he's chained between two guards? Don't you know they rotate the cohort every three hours with four guards outside the doors? Now be quiet. You're interrupting our prayer time. Oh, Lord, please save Peter. And Peter's outside going, you know. So finally they go out, and guess what? Oh, it's Peter. It's really Peter. I bet they were afraid to touch him. Maybe they thought he was a ghost or something. So what happens? Peter was released. They're praying for Peter's release. He is released, but it wasn't because they believed it, because their very actions believed they didn't believe it. So he was released because God wanted him released. And maybe it was to increase their faith that when you really do pray, you should expect that God will answer your prayers. But he always answers according to his will. So the next time you come into church, come early and look around and look at these verses and look these verses up and ask yourself, do I really believe that? Do I really believe with God nothing is impossible? Do you really believe that? Because if you really believed it, your behavior would demonstrate what your heart and your mind really reveal. Our behavior is always just an outward representation of what's first in our heart and what's in our head. 
Do you really believe that where God guides, God provides? Can God heal a little child from cancer? Sure. Do we know if he's going to? I don't know. Will I pray for it anyway? You bet. Will you know that I'll be pray believing that God could? Sure. But ultimately, like Jesus had to pray in the garden, Dad, if there's another way for this to happen without me having to go for the cross, now would be a good time for you to tell me what that other alternative could be. But if there isn't another alternative, then your will be done. And the reason we accept God's will is because we know the end of his will is our salvation and the end of our salvation and our redemption is eternity with him in heaven. Christians never die. We, we're limited in our language when a believer that physically dies. We have memorial services and we, we do these things. But we have to understand that true believers never die. John Turner did not die. He, John Harper, he went under the water Imagine, isn't that an interesting thing? He physically went under the water to release his spirit so his spirit could rise in newness of life and be united immediately with his Savior and Lord in heaven. The last thing the guy was doing in his life was leading other people to Christ. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So the first I am that you could say is, I am your name. You could say, I am your occupation or whatever you do physically. The next thing you should be able to write is, I am blessed. Now, interesting, when I talk with people and I, and I do this exercise with different people, some people say, I'm sad, I'm lonely, I'm unemployed. I, they, they describe physical things. Now, I want you to learn a principle from the scripture this morning. Wherever you put in your mind in words is what you put outside in your behavior. So if you want to sow negative and go negative, you can go negative. Uh, if you want to sow positive, like the word says you can do, you can sow positive. But you reap what you sow. If you sow negativity, you reap negativity. If you sow positive, you reap positive. It's, it's a law of the scripture. Paul does it all the time. There are 365 verses that says, do not fear. To us from the scripture you could read each one of those every day of the year and never read the same scripture twice you think God wanted to teach us something about do not fear do not be afraid be strong and courageous be anxious for nothing those just aren't platitudes these these are mental drivers that shape your outlook on life and how you look at life so if you write I am blessed and you believe it and you read that every day two or three four times a day particularly when you go to bed at night, you think you'd have a little bit more peace in your life, understanding God's grace, that you are blessed in the heavenly and spiritual blessings. Then he says, just as he chose us. All right, next one. So what are you? I am what? Chosen. I'm chosen. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, look, if you had foreknowledge and went to the Kentucky Derby and you knew which horse was going to win the Kentucky Derby, would you bet on the losers? No, it would make any sense if you knew who was going to win the race and you took every last dollar you had and you bet it on the winner, you wouldn't bet on a loser. Well, he says God doesn't bet on losers either. Susan and I were doing our morning devotion this morning and Norman Vincent Peale, who was a fellow from the 1950s who really started what was called sort of the positive movement and positive thinking movement, uh, was in China and he was walking past a tattoo parlor and he saw a sample tattoo that you could get called Born Loser. And it was sort of like, who would put a tattoo on their body? Born Loser, you know? <laughs> who would do that? So he was curious, so he went inside and the tattoo artist had a little knowledge of English. So he says, does, does anybody actually ever put that on their body? And he goes, oh, yes, oh, oh yes. They, he, says, he said, why would they do that? He said, he said, because they tattoo it in their mind before they tattoo it on their body. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? What you put into your mind determines what you put outside in your behavior. You're chosen. You're a winner. God chose you. There isn't a loser in this room. 
And if you go, oh, no, Pastor Mike, I'm sorry, I'd have to dispute that with you. Then I have people actually want to convince me why they're really losers when I tell them not. I mean, can you imagine this? You get in a conversation, you're going to get in a debate, and that people are trying to prove to me just how they're the biggest loser. No, you don't understand. I've done this in my life, and I've done this, and I've had this happen in my life. And, and they want to be persuaded. They want to persuade me into being convinced. I finally say, you know what? I guess you're right. You're just a big loser. You win the argument. I'm not going to fight with you anymore. How tragic. But don't you, have you ever thought of yourself that way? Don't you lie. Sure, there have been times when you've doubted yourself or doubted your abilities or, or just you went into this slow of despond and despair about I'm not any good, I'm not worthless, or I'm, I'm worthless, I don't deserve God's love. I, sure, you, we've all done that. But we shouldn't do it. Because we should take God's word and we should say, I am. And right here it says, I am chosen. Just as Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world. In other words, Jesus' death and resurrection was not an afterthought for Adam's sin. Because God already knew what Adam was going to do. So he already had a provision for having to make up for what Adam was going to do. So with God, I mean, we just can't fathom what it means to live outside of time. What it means to live outside of chronological time where God lives. We don't understand that. We can't really understand what it means to know everything. And never be surprised. God can't ever be surprised. If God was ever surprised, it means he found out something he didn't know. So he knows everything. So he can never be surprised like we are. We, we find out something and go, oh, I didn't know. God can never say, oh, I didn't know, because he knows. So Adam's sin wasn't a big disappointment. It wasn't a big, uh, you know, like, oh, what do I do now kind of thing. Jesus was chosen. Jesus was preordained. Jesus was predestined from the foundation of the world. So were you, and so was your salvation. So you can say, I'm chosen. That should make you feel good. Say that with me right now. I'm chosen. I'm chosen. Now, some of you are going, I'm chosen. <laughs> See? See what I mean? You've got you to try harder. Let's try that one more time. Uh, I'm chosen. Yeah. I was going to make a joke about an upcoming football game, but that probably wouldn't be a good thing because then that's going to make some of you feel really bad, and I don't want to do that. But you're winners. I am chosen. All right, let's move on. Now, now you get to see what we're going to do here, right? I'm chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be something. So you weren't just saved to be saved. You were saved to be something. You were saved to be able to go do something. Salvation is both an end and a means. Salvation is an end. We're now saved. We're reconciled. We're in right position with God. But we're not under judgment. We're under grace. That's the, the end of it. But the means of it is, now I'm now under God's grace that I should do something. And what should I go do? Well, what God has called me to do, whether I'm a pastor teacher, whether I'm a server, whether I have mercy, whether I have leadership and administration, whatever spiritual gift God has given you, John Harper was saved to save others. And that's what he was doing up to the very end of his own physical life. He was doing that. But not just in what we do, but we are saved that we should be something. What does the scripture say? Holy, oh my goodness. I'm supposed to be holy? Really? I mean, I, I just can't continue to dabble with sin and I can't, you know, well, temptation comes. You know, Pastor Mike, you don't understand. Life is really hard. And, you know, I mean, boy, thank goodness that I can keep sinning and grace keeps coming. Yeah, thank goodness for it, but that's not the way it's supposed to be. In 1 Peter himself, Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.15, don't you know what makes you holy? Don't you know what redeemed you? Don't you know what reconciled you? What is it that redeems you? How are you redeemed? Through what? The blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price of your redemption. Think about that. The price of your redemption. The price of your reconciliation. The price of you being chosen was the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. And then we're going to say, well, life is hard, and, you know, sin is tough, and so I can't always resist temptation, and, you know, it was just a little sin anyway, and, um, you, you know, well, you know, nobody's perfect. 
I mean, these are things people tell me all the time. And there are just excuses for not being what? For not being holy. They're just excuses for not being holy. And some people don't even want to try to be holy because it takes a little effort. It takes some effort on our part. In other words, there's really something I'm required to do. Yeah, you don't have to do anything to be saved. We're saved by the blood of Christ. The scripture is clear about that. But after you get saved, you don't go on some autopilot Holy Spirit switch into holiness. You have to do something. You cognitively and consciously must participate in the process of holy living. Resisting sin, resisting the devil. James 4, 7 says, if you what? Trust in God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Most people say, well, resist the devil and he will flee. There's, a part, there's, a, there's three parts to that. The first part is you better be trusting in the Lord. You better be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the other thing. Meeting Christians who have no idea about the power of the Holy Spirit in their life, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in their life. You know, the next time I come, I, I should just talk about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. How many of you, if you bought a vacuum cleaner, went home and started pushing a vacuum cleaner on a rug over your dog hair or over some dirt and it didn't suck up anything, would want to take it back to the store you bought it from and say, this thing doesn't work? I learned this with a power tool, a chainsaw. Guy sold me a chainsaw, said, Michael, this will help you cut wood five times faster than that manual saw you're using. So I take it home and I'm using this chainsaw and I'm killing myself with this chainsaw. In fact, it's, it's not giving me any more wood cut than when I was using my, my manual saw. So I took it back, you know, and I told him, there's a problem with this thing. It doesn't work. And the guy said, well, here, let me test it out and see. So he grabs it, and he puts a little choke thing on to put some gas in the motor, and he pulls this cord and goes, Brrrr! and I said, what's that noise? <laughs> Can you imagine me holding that? chainsaw and just trying to use it like it's just a manual. Isn't that silly looking? Just, just me even doing it make you think, Michael, you had a power, man. You gotta, well, that's the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you have the switch on? Do you have the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through your life? Or are you using a, a chain power chainsaw like it's a manual saw because you don't know how to turn it on? Or you have that vacuum cleaner and it's not plugged into the switch in the wall. And, and so you take it back and they plug it in and flip the switch and you go, what's that noise? So, oh, you mean I had to plug it in? Oh, you mean I had to turn it on? Holy Spirit, plugged in, turned on. You get the Holy Spirit in you at salvation, but are you plugged in? Are you turned on? Is the power flowing through your life? Do you even consider what your life would be like if you made it a daily habit to live holy? Try it tomorrow. Because we should say, not only have, am I chosen, I'm supposed to say, I am holy. You're supposed to be able to say, I'm holy. As he is holy. See, Jesus is our comparison. Don't compare yourself to anybody else, and don't let anybody else compare them to you. The only person you need to make a comparison to about your life is Jesus Christ. Stop comparing yourself to anybody else. Compare yourself to Jesus and ask yourself the question, am I holy as he is holy? You'll find out the answer is no, but you can get better, and you can work toward it. And without blame, I am what? Without blame. Stop blaming yourself. Stop letting Satan rehearse your old sins to you. You ever find yourself doing that? You ever find yourself in a temptation, and Satan says, yeah, this is the 56th time you've done that in the last day. Some of you thought I was going to say week or year. Yeah, no, like today. There's only the 56th time I've done that today. Be without blame. And how do you know you're without blame? Because you've been chosen. If you've been chosen, you've been redeemed. If you've been redeemed, where are your sins? Under the blood of Christ. I'm going to get in trouble for this metaphor. Have you ever gone to Krispy Kreme? Yes, okay, yeah, an honest person, yeah, all the rest of you didn't want to say. Did you ever go to the one where you can see the donuts coming down the conveyor line? Did you ever stand at the spot right in the window where that cream is? 
and, and you watch that donut go right through that waterfall of that luscious, warm cream, just ooze over the top of that donut. And then they take that little straw and they pick it right up for you so you can get it right, right seconds after that cream is oozed into the, into the dough. It's like eating a sugar angel, right? It just melts in your mouth. But I, I want you to think of yourself on a conveyor belt. And instead of being a Krispy Kreme donut, going through a, a lava fall of cream, going through the blood of Christ, and coming out the other side completely covered and completely oozed in the blood of Christ for redemption. And nothing can take that away. Nothing can take that away. The Apostle Paul is very clear. Nothing can take... Now, knowing how you've been redeemed and knowing the purchase of the blood of Christ and knowing you can go through the blood of Christ, through a veil and being washed in the blood of Christ for redemption, don't you think that's an incentive to just try to be a little holier? just a little bit more like him and to understand that you are without blame because you have passed through the blood and now what has that done for us having predestined us to adoption so here we go I am blessed I am chosen I am holy I am blameless now what I am predestined I am adopted now you have to understand the power of language in Roman times in which Paul was writing this if you decided to adopt a child as, as a parent bring a, bring a child into your home that child the adopted child had more legal rights under Roman law than your birth children you could disinherit one of your birth children don't you like that idea Say, hey, you straighten up or I'm disinheriting you, right? But if you adopted a child and they acted up, you couldn't threaten them with being disinherited because it was against the law. When you took a child and you adopted them and you brought them into your family, they were in your family forever. Remember the movie Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston? Anybody ever see that? Remember he gets adopted by the Roman commander that he saves during the sea battle? He's given a signet ring to demonstrate that this is the authority of his adoption. When he goes back to Jerusalem and he meets his main antagonist, and the guy wants to know what proof is it that you come, you know, he's, he takes a tablet and he presses the ring into the wax so he can prove his authenticity of ownership. He's sealed in the wax. Do you know the scripture says you were sealed by the Holy Spirit into what? Into adoption, into God's family. As a military family, we had to do an overseas move. So he boxed up all of our household goods, our furniture in these big wooden crates. And then they wrapped it with a seal and sealed them up. And the seal said, authorized entry only by representative of the United States government. Illegal tampering with this seal will result in a $25,000 fine and 15 years imprisonment. The American government even borrows from the scripture representation that this stuff doesn't belong to anybody else but the U.S. government and its official representative. And we are putting a seal of the U.S. government on this container so you know who it belongs to. And that same thing happened in ancient times. They would put seals on cargo containers that would leave the Middle East and go to Rome. And they would have a representative there with the seal of ownership so they could take legal possession of their master's property with a seal. You have been marked with a seal of the Holy Spirit. At the day of the rapture, you are going to be taken up to heaven because you are marked with the seal of promise of redemption of the Holy Spirit. And not just that you're God's possession, Jesus just isn't your savior and your Lord. He's your brother. We are adopted into the family of God. And if the intent from Paul writing here is to use the Roman law as an analogy, then there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in your redemption, that you were chosen, that you're predestined into the family of God, and nothing can, nothing can separate you from his love. We have been adopted as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. So Jesus even has done the work of the adoption. Jesus has done the work that brings us into the family. According to what? 
the good pleasure of his will. Do you know how lonely and how miserable it has to be to be a real atheist? And I've met them and I've debated them and I've stood face to face with them. Do you, do you know how empty your life is to say, I am nothing? And this earth is nothing. There is nothing after this earth. Now the thing is, they contradict themselves all the time that they must not really believe it. Because if they really believe that there's nothing after this earth, then why do they keep acting in ways to try to perverve the earth and keep the earth going? You know, because they, they just, sometimes non-believers act like they're better stewards of the earth than we are as believers. But they contradict, you know, behavior really demonstrates what someone believes, really. There can't really be, and I've told this to, to some of them, you're not a, a real atheist. You have a master passion. You believe something that has to bring meaning to your life. Because if you believed in nothing, the only rational action for you to take in believing nothing is to kill yourself. And tragically, that's where we're ending up. The pessimism and the negativity of a secular, humanistic, worldly philosophy is finally taking root. We're finally starting to reap what we sow, that the suicide rate in the United States of America is an all-time high epidemic proportion. People are finally believing what people are telling them who don't believe in Jesus. You're nothing. And when they come to the realization that they're nothing, they realize there is nothing worth living for, so they kill themselves. We have two, nearly two physician suicides a day in our country. Can, can you imagine that? You think, well, why would physicians kill themselves? They have money, they have prestige, they have power. Inside, they are empty. They've lost their autonomy to practice. They've lost meaning and value for why it meant to be a physician and go to medical school and become a doctor. Now they're just cogs of the big medical system. They, they work at the behest of payers. Uh, they're not even called doctors anymore. Now they're called care providers. And they're miserable and they're lonely. And many of them in the midst of this despair are killing themselves. You, on the other hand, have been chosen. Say it, I am chosen. I am to be holy. I am predestined. I am adopted. I'm out of time. <laughs> Actually, that's only 40 minutes. I set it for 45. I got five minutes. To the praise and glory of his grace to which he made us accepted in the beloved. I am accepted. See, go home. Be very slow, be very diligent, and go through not just chapter 1, but through chapter 2. And find out, make a list. I want, you to, I want you to make a list. I want you to start at the top and say, I am blessed. And then find, write the next one. I am chosen. Then write the next one. I am holy. Write the next one. I am predestined. Write the next one. I am adopted. Next one, I am redeemed, I am forgiven, I am rich, I am wise, I am prudent. Make the list. You ought to come up with a list of 46 I am statements by the time you get through the end of chapter 2. If you don't get that many, go back, you're missing something. Then I want you to, to do this. I want you to read that list first thing in the morning when you get up before you do anything else. Keep it by your bedside. You're waking up. Turn your light on before your feet hit the floor. I want that list to come off your nightstand. And I want you in prayer to ask the Holy Spirit to persuade you to believe that you are all those things in Jesus Christ. And then I want you to put it back on your nightstand. Because the last thing I want you to do before you go to bed and your head hits the pillow, do the opposite. I want you to read that entire list before you put your head on your pillow to go to sleep. And I want you to pray, and I want you, Lord, thank you for showing me who I am in you. If you do that for 30 straight days, and then make a little tick mark, right? Put on, on the page, make room so you can make 31 check marks. Because if you do it in the morning, you do it at night, you get a check mark. Now, I'm a, I'm a former professor, too, so I'm, this is your homework assignment. You only get to make the check if you do it in the morning and at night. You don't get partial credit. If you skip a day, you have to start all over again and go back to day one. 
So you don't get to be at the 28th day and forget and go, well, I almost did 31 straight days. No, if you get to 28 days and you forget to do it on day 29, you've got to go back and do it all from day one again. Okay, you with me? Now, I'm going to make you a promise. You cannot do what I just asked you to do for 31 straight days and tell yourself twice a day 46 statements of God for your life and not see something dramatic happen to your faith, happen to your prayer life, happen to your relationships first with God and your relationships uh, horizontally then with others. You get the vertical relationship right with God first, you get the horizontal relationship going with everything after that. You, you, you want grace of God? You want the peace of God? You cultivate that by the thoughts that you put into your head and you fill yourself with the ultimate I am statement. What was God's name when Moses asked him? Who should I say sent me to you in Egypt? And God said, I am. You're speaking the truth of God himself into your life. I am redeemed. I am reconciled. I am purchased. I am See, it's all from him first. You're taking the very essence of who he is into your life. And then what you're really doing is you're doing a mental exercise to convince yourself the truth of God's word. So that in the truth of his word, it can now affect it in you in your own manifestation of what you think, in your emotions, and in your behavior. And maybe if we all decided to do that, we'd all get just a little bit holier, don't you think? Do you think if you just did this every day, you don't think that you couldn't try to just be a little bit more like him? And try doing it at home first. Make the relationship in your home a sanctuary of I am statements and see if that doesn't help improve the quality of the relationships you have with each other. And then take it from there and then take it out. So make it a laboratory. Again, I'm giving you an opportunity to test God's word, prove God's word, and take God's word into your life in such a practical way that the one thing we all desire more of, just a little bit more peace, would come into our life by appropriating God's grace, receiving his peace, and in each of us committing to be a little bit more like him every day. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Uh, we come before you now in prayer, believing. I really do, Lord. I believe you can do anything. I believe all things are possible with you. I believe there's nothing that you can't do. I believe in your sovereignty. So, Father, we come to worship you one more time. And in this worship, change our hearts and change our minds. Give us more faith to believe what your word says. Not that we just study it as a theoretical exercise, but that we study your word to appropriate your word, to put your word into our hearts that we really do behave differently, that we actually act like we believe what your word says. So, Father, help us in our unbelief. Grow us in our faith. Give us excitement to become holy. Father, give us the desire to resist temptation. Father, give us the ability to know who we are in you. And that because of that, we can go and represent you rightly to a lost and dying world. And, Father, in the legacy of John Harper, if we had to choose today, Father, would we choose to save the life of someone who is yet to be spiritually saved and sacrifice the ultimate of our own life here on earth to do it. Father, whatever it is that you're going to bring into our life, Father, help us and lead us and guide us into all truth, the application of that truth, and the blessing of knowing who we are and whose we are in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.